Tobias Viren. It's great to be alive. I mean, the the alternative is not really intriguing. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. Today I have a very prominent and nice guest because I worked with him, <laughs> actually. Uh, it's Tobias Virian. Uh, you've heard a short presentation or read a short presentation uh, of him before this episode. But I'll just go right at it. Tobias, who are you? Thank you, Kerstin. It's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you in the pod. My name is Tobias Virian and I'm an orthopedic surgeon by trade. I I was practically born at St. Joran's Hospital. My dad was an orthopedic surgeon, so instead of daycare, I had to go to the orthopedic department and practice on the hip replacements. Eventually, I actually became an orthopedic surgeon myself and ended up as head of department for a number of years. For the last four years, I've been um, the business area manager for Capio Orthopedics. Uh, meaning that I try to uh, standardize and, and com make communication better between the different units within Capio Sweden. And the most exciting part now is maybe that we have the international perspective. Part of Ramsey Healthcare, we have uh, affiliation with a lot of units across the world. Mm, so a network, really. It's, mm. it's growing. And that probably one of a few really good things for orthopedic surgeons during the pandemic that we've actually got in touch over teams, meetings and so forth. This really makes me think that this will be a great episode because I have kind of the whole spectrum here from you being almost born into a hip replacement. I don't dare to ask when you made your first replacement. Maybe it wasn't even legal. I don't know. It, <laughs> it was definitely not legal. <laughs> Prescription time. You, you started early. Uh, and, and now, what do you call it? Business area manager. That's the correct. So we term. have the, the whole span. But if we start with actually you being an orthopedic surgeon as a trade how come you chose orthopedics being a physician i was intrigued by a lot of the mechanical stuff and, and as an orthopedic surgeon you really love the plates and the screws and, and the, the hardware when you start it's like the building blocks, the Lego pieces that you grow up with as a kid so that was sort of my way into orthopedic. I, I, I trained mostly as a fracture surgeon, trying to uh, fit the different pieces back together and restore function. Of course, orthopedic surgery is a lot of pain surgery, a surgery against pain from a joint that's been degenerated or distorted in some way. But as I learned more of the mechanical stuff and started to get the hang of that, 
it was intriguing. I thought that the pain didn't always go away just because we fixed the fracture in the perfect way. So I moved away from the belief that it's only the mechanical bit that is important for the patients. I, I grew into seeing more of the person behind the fracture than the fracture itself. Mm. And maybe that's one of the first steps away from the clinical as well, going to more organizational and behavioral sciences of leadership and so well, uh, be, being an anesthetist, I know we shouldn't generalize different physicians, but to be honest, we have a, a certain view of orthopedic surgeons being anesthetists. And for anyone not being familiar with that sketch on YouTube, you should look up, I need to fix this fracture, right? But anyway, do you think that there are a certain kind of personality that becomes orthopedic surgeons or does the orthopedic surgeon education form people into becoming that type of personality? What do you think? Philosophical question. I think both aspects are correct in a way. I think that many people have a perception of the orthopedic surgeon based on, on the fracture sketch, that it, it's the mechanical bit uh, that's interesting. And so that would probably lure a lot of feigning physicians into orthopedics. But then I think that sometimes we're also formed by the traditional orthopedic yeah, training that we do. It, mm. I mean, in, in the old days, it was believed that only this big, strong guys could be orthopedic surgeons. Today, it's often the smart ladies that are actually some of the best orthopedic surgeons because it's not the brute force that's necessary. It's the thinking behind the fixing of the fractures. Mm. Has anything happened in orthopedic surgery throughout the years? You, you can hear it's almost a rhetorical question, of course it has, but, <laughs> but not knowing. I mean, anything big out there that, that you have seen through the years that's kind of revolutionized yeah. the whole business? There was a paradigm shift about 10 years ago where the importance of the hardware successively diminished and the importance of the team, the ways of working, the anesthesiology around the surgery became increasingly important. So it was with the introduction of rapid recovery concepts after surgery, when I started you stayed about two weeks in the hospital after hip replacement. Today, you go home sometimes on the same day. And the reason why we had to stay, keep the patients for two weeks in the hospital was that uh, we made them sicker than they had to be. We gave them all kinds of drugs that we, we feared that they were going to be in a lot of pain. And so we gave them large shots of morphine and, and that made them nauseous. And then they vomited and then they, we gave them a drip. And when we gave them a drip, we diluted the blood. So we had to give them blood because we thought they were actually still bleeding. And then they, we gave, gave them medication against the nausea, which just made things even worse. And that went on for a couple of days until we finally stopped giving them all this stuff and, and then they felt much better and went home and and so we were part of the problem ourselves and we didn't even see that oh you 
you're giving me this deja vu uh, feeling. I, I had a, a, a pod with the physician Michel Tagliati and, and he had exactly the same story about doctors prescribing antidepressants and how you start to oscillate and getting worse. You know this from healthcare when we have patients who are fragile or in, in recovery that if you over treat their condition, they become more patient and, and their healthy drive disappears and they stay in their bed. They should be immobilized. If they're able to walk to the toilet, let them walk to the toilet just to take a brute example. And we, we make them sicker, he said. And you say the same thing. And, and of course we do that because we want to help. It's not like it's the evil orthopedic surgeon or GP standing out there. We thought that was best, but we know better now, don't we? Yeah, but still, I, I think we need to hold a mirror uh, up in front of ourselves more often because there are probably lots of things like this that we do today that are still going to be considered really obsolete and stupid in the future. So, Do you have any thoughts about that already now that you can disclose that are not a business secret? Anything that you think could be obsolete or something you would actually like to take a look at? Well, I'm constantly triggered by things that I feel are not sort of in a natural way. A number of uh, things where we're incentivized or reimbursed in a way that we would always choose a more complex way to solve a problem. As an orthopedic surgeon, you are promoted if you can master a lot more of the different contraptions that we use. The more advanced the method is to solve a fracture, the faster you're promoted and you get higher pay, higher salary, and the reimbursement from the um, government uh, increases. So we're constantly driven to use a more complex method of solving a simple problem. Sometimes nature has figured that out already in a better way, or that there is actually a, a much cheaper a method to the surgery. And so I think when it comes to fracture surgery, we'll, we already have a tendency to look at some of these things like arthroscopic surgery for degenerative uh, joints that have uh, been deemed as something not to do. We will have the same discussion more intensely when it comes to proximal humeral fractures or distal radius fractures and things like that, where probably we've chosen more complex methods than necessary. So the surgery that you can get when you break an arm, for instance, is a little bit too complex, maybe. You could make it simpler. Mm. So funds are not limitless. Now we'll have to look at a uh, uh, sort of cheaper way and simpler way of solving the same problems, mm. but with the same medical quality but we've confused quality with adding more things or procedures without really reflecting on it because mm. we used to have all the resources we needed or wanted. Bring in the machine that says beep. So a lot of groundwork to be done before we move into things like robotic surgery for everything. That's happening in orthopedics that will 
probably see an inflow of more machines available, expensive machines. If you haven't done your homework, getting the basics right first, the cheaper basic stuff that you can do, then it's no point in just buying a 20 million robot to, to fix the details. At my hospital, they are performing the largest artificial intelligence study on breast radiology, you know, to see if the doctor and the computer together can make a better diagnosis in, in short, which is very exciting when we see those results. Uh, are you aware of any AI uh, going on in orthopedics? There are some AI projects in, in radiology and fracture diagnostics and things like that. And I think we'll see more of that. I heard that it takes about eight seconds to get an AI-based radiology report. And if you could get that in the emergency room at night, when it's usually several hours before you get a radiologist going up and, and sending a report back, then diagnostics will improve a lot. Mm. And, and so in orthopedics, we're often dependent on other specialists to drive the, the pathway in a faster way. So I think mm. we'll see a lot more support there. And also, hopefully, that the selection of patients and the, the prognostic factors for a good outcome will be assisted by, by more AI algorithms. Mm. Because it's still confusing. We, we seldom know beforehand who will respond well to our surgery. That's, that's one of the great enigmas, isn't it? We don't know, and, and a lot of research is done on finding the right way to treat patients. And yeah. sometimes you think that uh, orthopedic surgery would be, so to say, easy. It's just to fix the fracture. But, but it's not really that simple, isn't it? We did a small study, not scientific in any way, at the hospital, at St. Joran's Hospital, where we asked the surgeons how they thought the outcome would be after hip and knee replacement. Yeah, sort of the mechanical bit of it was pretty much the same, but the surgeons would still say that sometimes they thought the patients would actually have a better outcome than expected, and sometimes they said that it would be worse than expected. There's a gut feeling within surgeons that is not based on, on the objective part of the surgery that did correlate quite well with the patient uh, reported outcome. So that is interesting. So I think that there are some soft factors that orthopedic surgeons are aware of, but mm. have not really pinned down yet. That's very interesting. When you talk to HR people, if you have an interview with someone, you often read that it's very important that you shouldn't go by your gut feeling. You should use all these different kind of formulas and questionnaires so you, you get an objective evaluation of the person. But still, 
there is that gut feeling and I am sure that that is our brain, you know, processing all the different facts we have into this striatum and, and finally we have, you know, our verdict and that's not guessing, it's something much, much, much deeper than that and we would really like to pinpoint that. So that's actually what you're saying, of course it was their experience and, and body language and what the patient said and how the tissue was felt when they did the surgery. I don't know, I'm not an yeah. orthopedic yeah. surgeon, but of, and uh, that would be great if we could um, extrapolate that into real results in the future. Yeah. So that might yeah. be an AI thing. Wow. It might really? be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You said in the beginning that orthopedic surgery is a it's a pain treatment, a pain surgery. And and I must say that probably one of the best pain treatments in the world must be the hip and knee replacement. I mean, those results are just fantastic. But still, if we have 95% that get pain-free or less pain or more function, we have a few percent that don't get better or still have a lot of pain mm. in the metal, so to say. What are your thoughts about those patients that, that do get this perfect replacement and still have pain? What, yeah. what are your thoughts? It's a profoundly intriguing question, and, and it's, it has puzzled me too. We've done deep interviews of the most dissatisfied patients that we've had, trying to understand why they would still have pain or be dissatisfied. And it's often you end up in, in discussions about completely different things than you thought. It's sometimes about the patient experience and, and not having felt entirely safe or haven't been listened to. Sometimes it's it's about the food was, you couldn't choose the portions or it came at the intervals when you didn't want to, that autonomy as a patient was not respected and things like that. And I think sometimes we should listen to the silent bit of patient says. There are vast unexplored parts of the patient problem that we don't have time to go into or don't want to listen to because it's beyond our own reach or imagination, maybe. So it's exploring those silent bits of the patient communication together with the patient for these four or five percent that are not satisfied could teach us a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I, I always talk a lot uh, about something we call the big four when, when we talk about patients at the hospital. If you want to get good results, you need to look at four things. And, and those are if, if they have any amount of depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, or pain, because those really interfere with everything. And of course, if you have a little bit of uh, sleep disorder, you get moody and you get tired, and then you don't like the food when they give it to you, uh, or you have anxiety and you don't like the way things are being done at the ward which has nothing to do with how many centimeters you are putting that prosthesis into your hip or, or knee. There have been studies showing that if you're not satisfied overall, the surgery result is worse, which is kind of strange for us as doctors. We think it's just, you know, to 
to do our job, and that would be great enough. But as you say, it's it's a very big area. It's like dark matter in the universe, yeah. something we don't know anything about. And, yeah. and then communication often breaks down between the doctor and the surgeon and the patient because we don't understand each other. We don't we don't have the same picture of what has happened or what has taken place. The surgeon is really pleased with with the radiological picture of of the surgery, but the patient yeah. is not feeling what the doctor expected yeah. him or her to feel. I have two things I usually try to say to my patients. The first is before the surgery, talk with your orthopedic surgeon and say what what you want the result to be to be satisfied and see if that correlates with what the surgeon says. Because sometimes the surgeon says it's function or it's a posture or it's some something else, but the patient says it's my pain. Or even if the pain goes away, I don't want the numbness or the tingling feeling. And then they start to say that, oh, but I can't uh, do a surgery that takes away the tingling feeling. I, I don't expect that. So they know that before. So that's the first thing I say. And the other thing is, I'm sorry, Tobias, this was an interview with you and not with me, but I need to say this. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, uh, sometimes people who had had back surgery and they are very dissatisfied because they still have a lot of pain. And I ask them, is the surgeon satisfied? And they say, oh yes, but I still have pain. And I say, but, but that's terrific because then you know it's stable. You don't have to do a surgery again. We don't need to talk about the surgery anymore. Now we just deal with the pain and kind of leave. I mean, this, the orthopedic surger, surgeon did his or her best. No, no doubt about it. So I think that's very, very important. And you being a head of department some years, you need to take care of all the complaints. I know that by my own experience. Uh, you talked about the most disappointed patients, but overall, when you talk with patients at your clinic who are not satisfied, what was your feeling? What was their biggest complaint? If we want to give our fellow physicians a word of advice down. We made it our a point to actually meet up with the patients that had complaints or were dissatisfied early on after the complaint arose. So I would have fixed time slots once or twice a week where the junior surgeons could actually book these dissatisfied patients directly to me as head of department. So it was no longer a threat from the patient that I'm going to go see the boss. Um, the, the boss actually wanted to meet the dissatisfied people mm -hmm. because it was a source of new good ideas. Mm -hmm. And for the most, I would spend about 10 to 15 minutes in silence when I met these patients because they were full of things to tell me. Often at a, a rapid pace with raised voice and <laughs> a little bit of an angry body language, but that was... That was almost like pushing a release button because after that we could actually explore together why feelings were there. And often it was not that the surgeon or doctor didn't listen to what the patient really wanted to say. But that was the miscommunication that was the origin of everything. Mm.
So, so mostly communication, really, more than uh, that something was wrong with the Very seldom something wrong with the surgery, because the, both the patient and the doctor were often quite satisfied with the technical result. It was just the communication around it and that there was not an opportunity or room enough to talk about the things that really mattered to the patient. The pain was often more sort of an itch of the soul than, mm. than an actual mechanical problem. What was the response from your fellow doctors that you did this? Weren't, didn't they get anxiety by having to meet all these patients all the time? I think it, for some of the younger doctors, it was a relief to know that there was sort of a fallback or backup plan if, if a patient came back and was dissatisfied, because that often ruins the whole outpatient day if someone wants to spend 30 minutes just complaining. It was a way of handling the problem and taking it out of concept. I would often set aside an hour because I could do that as a boss. I could really give that patient a sense that I had all the time in the world to listen to them. Mm. It, it rarely took more than 25, 30 minutes, but the perception that I was there for them to go all the way with this problem. And I planned a follow-up visit just to be sure that they knew what the next step would be. I gave them my personal card so they knew that they could always get in touch with me. And so it, it, that spread in the organization as, as sort of a fallback. For me, it was one of the best sources of new good ideas. Some of the patients they had really thought about this and, and they came up with uh, uh, good things that I would never have thought of. So some of my colleagues, I think, in, in the end, were a bit envious that I actually had the time or had the possibility to talk to patients in depth like this. Mm. So I think it, it, it was a good way to think about patient safety and continuous improvement work to do this. Seems like you use the time very wisely to give the time to the patient. Excellent, really. I think so. When I started that as head of department, I spent about 30% of my initial time just taking care of complaints and, and reports to the National Board of Health and Welfare. And I realized that if, if this was going to be the way I spent my days as head of department, I'm, I'm not going to do this. So I had to find a way to make that a smaller part of my work. And so just setting up this system to describing the patient needs and coming to some kind of resolution with this massive amount of complaints was important. And so a bit more structure was good. And uh, at, at the end, there was maybe one or two visits like this a month. And, mm -hmm. and I saw that as a gift from the patients to me. And mm -hmm. I could actually drive some of the improvement processes this way. You said something uh, almost as a parenthesis, but I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into that one. We have patients who say that it's very difficult to get in touch with people in healthcare, especially doctors. 
And I think that doctors say that if they give patients an easy way to get in contact with them, they will have nothing else to do than just talking with patients. And then you said something about slipping them your personal business card. And I was thinking, although you say that you have the time as a boss to give them one hour, I know how much you had to do. And I know how much I have to do uh, being a head of department that no one actually sees, but it takes a lot of time to do all the different things. So you really don't want anyone to call you and kind of say that, oh, it was a great meeting last week, but now I have some more ideas. How in the world did you have the courage to give uh, them your personal business card? And what was the result? Did they call you all the time or? Actually, they didn't. Uh, in the beginning, I, I was as um, afraid or cautious as you described. But when the calls didn't come, I, I kept on doing this and I gave them out more frequently. I had a couple of people that would call me on a more regular basis or at least a couple of weeks in between but i often had something planned for them so they knew that in three or four months they would come and see me hmm. and and so they would often save the questions for that meeting but i think it was more important for them to feel secure and that they had the possibility uh, and they were often very respectful when they called. They said that, I'm, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I really must tell you this. We often spend a lot of time over the phone just reassuring the patients that they can come in contact with us. And that's unnecessary time, maybe. We spend little time discussing the really important stuff. So now I spend more time discussing the important stuff than the unimportant stuff. Hmm. And so I, I think for everyone who's a bit hesitant in, in trying this, I should say, just go ahead and see for yourself, because my impression during 12 years as head of department was never that they were calling um, all the time in unnecessary ways. It was more important for the patients to know that they could call if something happened. Yeah, that's uh, very wise as well. I, I saw uh, an interview with, I can't remember his name now, but uh, he started the Alaska model. You probably heard about that kind of revolutionary thing in their healthcare system. He said that the doctors gave their phone numbers to the patients because that was kind of a thing that the, the patients would know how to call them if necessary. But they never got any calls. Uh, they shouldn't be afraid of that, he said. And, and I know that uh, some patients know my phone number, which I might not have given out myself. They have probably looked it up. But anyway, I, I think during the last 10 years, no one has, you know, bothered me. It, it's, all, it's been like a text message. I'm sorry, I'm late for the appointment. And I was, who? how did you get my number? But that, that was much better than, you know, them trying to call the department. So exactly like you say, they, they want us to use our time wisely as well. So that might be a kind of advice for our colleagues out there, not to be afraid to be in contact with your patients, really. To understand our patients and be in touch with them in that way. I think uh, makes the visits even easier, you know, and it's not an overload uh, just to 
have that short text message or terms are very respectful of your time and understand that you're pressed for time. So they behave almost in a better way when they know that they have accessibility. Mm. Yes, so now we kind of covered your work as an orthopedic surgeon. Now being a little bit higher in the organization, you, are, you think that I will now start to ask you about your current thoughts and ideas. But no, I'm going to ask you what it's like to be head of a department or head at uh, this level in an organization about the workload. I have people who say that when they are being managers, no one understands how much there is to do on one hand. On the other hand, I have people who say it's much more freedom to have a, a job like this. What are your personal views on moving from changing hips to being a, a visionary man up there? Kind of provocative question, I know. But what do you say? How has your life changed during these years? There are good parts and bad parts of every position, I would say. Maybe there is more room to move and do things that you decide are important when you move up the ladder, so to speak. So you can decide how you want to spend your time. It, you don't spend less time at work, but you spend it in a, in a in a way that you can organize yourself. Being sort of a middle manager, then you're often squeezed in between the top managers and the people that you will have to convince to do the stuff that you need to have done. You have more room to drive your own thoughts or ideas as you move up the ladder, because culture comes from the top in a way. So I like the culture bit and the visionary, and I have more room to spread those thoughts through the organization this way. But I do miss the, the close contact with the action. Mm. I like to sneak into the different units just to get the feel uh, of the atmosphere and, and the intensity when you see patients every day. I wish there could be a way to keep some of the clinical work. It's hard with an operative specialty because you need to do it frequently and a lot to be really good. And I, I would not be satisfied if I couldn't um, perform at the level that our patients expect us to. That's why I, I welcome some of the complaining patients because then I can sometimes sneak away and talk to them or have patient panels and, and things like that just to get closer to the action. Hmm. Um, so you really don't want to, to leave the, the action, which must be very nice for the organization as well, to have someone who is actually connected to the work. It's about people, and I, I love people. That's one of my passions, really. At head offices, there are more computers and, and less people. If you want to get the feel for the business, then you need to move out in the front line sometimes. I think that's what leadership is about. In the book that I wrote, I had quite a few lines about radiology findings and especially back surgery. And I had an example of a 63-year-old lady in New York who went to 10 different clinics with the same symptoms and the same MRI findings, of course. And they had independent 
physicians who took a look at the pictures and she got like, I don't know if it was 49 different diagnoses and none was on every clinic. And on those uh, diagnoses, you do surgery sometimes. So that's one side of it, that maybe you do orthopedic surgery on backs that shouldn't be surgered on. But then I had a talk with a physiotherapist who said that we actually do less surgery on backs in Sweden than in other parts of the world. So there might be some wiggle room for us to do more. I try not to have certain opinion if I'm not very sure. So I need to see both sides. And I think you're the perfect guy in the middle because you're an orthopedic surgeon, but you really think about the whole person. You don't think about the metal going in or reimbursement. You're thinking, how are we trying to make it better for the patient in the long run? So you get the big question, the biggest question <laughs> for today. What about back surgery? I'm not a spine surgeon, even though I was trained to do some procedures. We used to have quite a large spine surgery business at the hospital. And there are extremely skilled technical surgeons that do spine surgery. It's difficult surgery, and there are so many difficult technical bits about it. But still, you are sometimes puzzled what you see in the MRIs, the correlation, the diagnosis, decisions vary. Sometimes I think we see what we need to see to motivate the procedure that we want to do. It is not exact science when it comes to an MRI and the correlation to what is possible from a surgical standpoint, but you need to make it fit in the picture. And, and when you document this, it should be logical so you could defend it if it was ever questioned. So I think that is sometimes a problem to, to get the objective part of it. And mm -hmm. the, the correlation between what we see and the function is sometimes just puzzling. Coming more from the fracture side, there sometimes fractures that you believe that the patients would never be able to move the joint. It's destroyed, but still the patient can come in with fairly good function and not complaining of pain and understanding why it's, it's a bit difficult to move the hand up above the head if, if there's a shoulder problem, but they, they understand it. I think the problem with back problems is sometimes that it's a mysterious part of the body and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of ideas of what's going on that is actually scary for the patient. The patients would also want someone else to deal with it and, and just fix that problem and take away that herniated disc even if it's not causing the problem. I had a story about the, a patient who sat beside an orthopedic surgeon and he pointed at a black disc and he said, you see, it's nothing there. And, and that was kind of the, the feeling she had afterwards that, oh, I have a black disc in my back. And uh, thinking about black discs, it was like a, a, a lung where you have smoked a lot or, or a limb that is going dead. And I said, well, it's just that it's less water in it and it looks black on, on the image. And it's, if you would take it out, it wouldn't be black. 
it's just black on the x-ray. So it's a lot to do with communication, like you say, because you, of course, if, if I would do some image of my back, I would probably be terrified because I'm not very young anymore and I do have some back problems sometimes, but I wouldn't like to know what it looks like. On the other hand, we have some excellent results with patients who had surgery. So I, I'm not trying to waste the whole <laughs> speciality, but, but it's, it's very difficult, so to say. It is. The abundance of diagnostic methods also makes us um, look at the picture instead of the person. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to go to Kenya and Zambia and do a few sessions as a doctor. And there's no availability really for x-rays. You would have to look at the patient, get the function still remaining, and then decide on the correct actions. But on and off, you would actually get an x-ray or some more diagnostic methods, and you see what was really behind the scene, really. And then you're surprised. You, you say to the patient, you should really be in a lot of pain. Just judging from this picture, you should be, you should not be able to walk or... I hope you don't say that to the patient. <laughs> You're just thinking it. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking it for the most part. But I think that is really interesting if, if you compare it to the situation here. We often want the patient to have an MRI when they come to us as orthopedic surgeons. We are ahead of our thinking by looking at the MRI picture before we even see the patient. So we've decided on that there is a problem here. There is a black disc and there is some other problem. And so the cause of action is already decided when we see the patient, but maybe they, they don't have that problem. Mm. So interesting, really. I, I talked in some early episodes about what your oasis is, what you do to get your own energy. And I must ask you, what, what do you do when, when work is overwhelming or, or just recharging your batteries? What is your thing to do? I hope it's not replacing hips <laughs> at home. <laughs> Well, there are so many things. I mean, there are so many things to be grateful for. Of course, the your family and friends are, are really important. And just, I love people. So I, I like I like to see what people think and, and talk to people and see films about that, or theater and music and, and all the different aspects. Very curious. And so just finding more enigmas and, and having the opportunity to spend some time thinking about all these things is really recharging for me. It, it's, it's, it's great to be alive. I mean, it, the, the alternative is not really intriguing. So I try to spend as much time as possible just enjoying that. You actually touched again on, on my uh, pod with the uh, physician Michelle because I, I asked him about the philosophers and maybe people don't have time to think about life anymore because it's so hectic but now I realize there's one orthopedic surgeon who is thinking about all these things and I'm, I'm very happy to to see that well Tobias ha have we missed something if you were to listen to two 
guys talking about everything from surgery to how to look upon a, a, a patient, communication, complaints. Is there anything else that we should say that they so they don't hang up this session and say, oh, that was not very interesting, was it? Looking ahead can sometimes be interesting, even though we don't know so many of the answers. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to pain patients in, in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that teaching, I, I think that, do you call it a pedagogical orthopedics could be a future business, trying to teach people why the body behaves in certain manners and making them understand more of the, the pain maybe they have and could, should be a, a red string even for orthopedic surgeons in the future. There's great potential in just trying to take away some of the mystery around bodily functions and pain that yeah. will probably save the population from a lot of suffering. Mm. And healthcare from uh, using unnecessary resources. Like yeah. you say, we have limited resources and we need to use them wisely. Tobias, this has been such a pleasure, really. I'm so grateful that you took the time. And I hope there are no hard feelings because I always joke about orthopedic surgeons. I love you all, just so you know. We love you back. <laughs> Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you. Pleasure being with you.